0: Good to see you all tonight. trust you're having a good week. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1 tonight. One of the great chapters in the Bible. um, There's really a one-two punch, two powerful punches, two knockout punches in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to see the second part of this two-part punch tonight. Uh, And let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble. Thank you for each one that's able to come out. I pray that you would bless our time of study in your word. Thank you for Colossians chapter 1. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the Iwana uh, ministry ongoing, as well as the youth group. Thank you for all the workers, all the hard work they put in week in and week out. Bless their labors. Fill them with joy as they serve. And uh, Lord, bless our time now. Speak to our hearts. May we have ears to hear. And give me grace to teach. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we note uh, Colossians emphasizes Christ, and specifically the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And uh, boy, after he begins the book, he, he begins with thanksgiving, really, for them after the basic introduction, the grace, you know, introduction is, is common to Paul, grace to you, and so forth. But then he gives thanks for the people, he's praying for them. And, but then he gets right to the point in chapter 1, and he has a big concern what's going on there. He's thankful for the people, but he has a concern about some false teachers that have infiltrated the group, and they're teaching in error, they're teaching erroneously about what? Well, about the most important topic, Christ. They got, they got Jesus wrong. You get Jesus wrong, you got everything wrong. And th- there's a problem here in relationship to Jesus Christ. And so he's right out of the gate, hitting this very hard. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 15 through 19, uh, one of the strongest passages we have in the New Testament on the person of Christ, uh, his exalted position overall, him being the creator of all. All things are created for him, uh, by him and for him. And uh, so a tremendously strong uh, passage. But as I say, that's Part one of two parts, in terms of emphasis here. The other corresponding emphasis might be what? Well, it's the work of Jesus Christ. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. This is the one-two punch that we have throughout the entire scriptures. Old Testament prophecies about the coming one uh, involve what? Well, prophecies about his person. Prophecies about his coming work. Uh, Isaiah 53 and so forth. So, so we have interwoven throughout, throughout the New Testament we have this. Throughout the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Belief we have this. Uh, we see it in the book of Hebrews. We see it here in the book of Colossians. And so we're going to see this very strongly uh, tonight as we continue on here in terms of the, the person of Jesus Christ. We left off last time at verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, It pleased the Father that in Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Well, we don't have to wonder what he's talking about there. He further qualifies this. I mean, he's just made it very clear in the uh, ensuing context here. But across the page in chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you've got the full representation of deity found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where he leaves off in verse, at verse 19. But now, he kind of transitions to the work of Christ. Really, they're blended together as they are. They are a package. But the order here is important, too, because the, the person of Christ is all important in terms of the work of Christ. I mean, if he wasn't who he was, the work of Christ wouldn't be what it was. So, the work of Christ is all dependent upon the person of Christ. He's nailed down the person of Christ, and now he's going to emphasize, building on that, the work of Christ. And let's have somebody read verse 20. Just verse 20 here to start us off. Somebody want to read that? Yeah, Albert? Okay, thank you. Notice uh, we're picking up mid-sentence here as we are continuing on with the thought from verse 19. And it says, and by him, this is, of course, Jesus Christ in the context here, By him, uh, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, Jesus Christ is the agent of reconciliation. By him, stated twice in this verse. By him, to reconcile all things to himself. Now, what's the idea of reconcile? Reconcile. Sometimes people want to reconcile. What's happened here? Well, there's been... There's been a problem, right? There's been, there's been hostility. There's been something that's come between them. To reconcile means to be brought back into a right relationship, right? Jesus Christ is the reconciling uh, agent here. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Yeah, no, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so reconcile. You change from enmity to friendship. That's the idea. Uh, from hostility to harmony, uh, it's a change of relationship. That's the idea of reconciliation. And by the way, you don't see it here in the English, but in the Greek, it's in, in the intense form here. I mean, it doesn't m- merely simply mean to, to reconcile. Uh, it means to completely reconcile. It's emphatic. It's stated in the intense form here by him to reconcile, completely reconcile. reconcile. So total restoration, uh, is the idea. By the way, in the New Testament, reconciliation always goes uh, man being reconciled to God. It's never like God being reconciled to man. W- why might that be? Man is seen as being reconciled to God, not God reconciled to man. Well, we can't do it, but beyond that, what else? No with God. No Amen. We are the problem. God hasn't moved right? We moved into the position of enmity. Uh, God didn't move, so we need to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Well, we can't do it, that's for sure. And we're gonna, we're gonna, the rest of the text is going to emphasize that, that very strongly. Yeah, you know, we can't do it either. That's true, and that's why we need grace. That's right. But uh, by him, Jesus Christ, uh, to reconcile all things to himself. By the way, there's five key words that relate to uh, salvation in the New Testament. Maybe I just, uh, before I show you, just quiz you, right? What are these five words? One of them might be what? Ah, reconciliation. That's a good guess. Very good student here. What other words? Well, I'm thinking about the, the theme of reconciliation here. What's that? Well, that's been mentioned, repentance, and repentance is involved here, but are you talking about let, me, let me show you what I'm talking about here, maybe. Help? <laughs> there we go, thank you. Yeah, so here are five New Testament uh, keywords that relate to salvation. Uh, yeah, uh, justification, to be declared righteous. And that happens at the moment of saving faith. Redemption means to deliver by paying a price. We, we've noted that word last week. Forgiveness, to send away. Adoption, placed in the privileged position of, of adult son. And now reconciled, change in relationship from enmity to friendship. So these are just five key words uh, re- related to various nuances related to salvation and, of course, when we look at the man side of things in terms of the response that is needed, yeah, repentance comes in there, what we're talking about. But, uh, and we will talk about that as we go along here tonight. But uh, reconciles the operative word here for this verse right here, verse 20. By him to reconcile, catch this, all things, all things to himself by him, uh, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, Is this uh, describing universal salvation or not? Albert, did you see what it says here? Reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, you didn't misunderstand me. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Why is it wrong? I know. I'm just going to play the the devil's advocate here a little bit. It says all things, Albert, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Isn't that universal? <laughs> Let's develop a biblical argument. I, I, I am in agreement with you totally. But how do you get there? What about the people who turn to this verse and say, right here, everything? I mean, universal salvation. It's right there. They argue that. How do we refute that? Well, that's true. That's a good place to start. And, yeah, verse 23, she's saying, read on. But, Really, when we consider the whole counsel of God, there is a context to the all things. And so I like to say, God, Jesus Christ is going to reconcile all things reconcilable. Uh, but there are some things outside of that scope. And uh, for example, uh, we find very clearly at the end of the book here, Revelation 20, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Obviously, we're not talking reconciliation there, Right? So when we compare Scripture with Scripture, and Scripture never contradicts uh, Scripture, so if you were to take this part of this verse in isolation, you could probably try to argue for universal salvation. But when we begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, which we know does not contradict one another, it cannot mean that. So the question is, then what are we talking about here? Uh, Weather things on earth. Let's start there. Uh, The whole earth is involved in the fall in the sense that it has suffered the consequences of the fall. Uh, and we find, like in Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 20 through 22, the creation was subjected to a futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Talking about really when the kingdom comes and, and the curse is largely removed. And then he says, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So the whole creation has been affected. So you can see Christ has, has, is bringing about a reconciliation related to the world, which has been out of sorts because of the fall. And he's going to bring it back into line, back, back into harmony uh, as, as intended. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. What about things in heaven? Is there anything out of sorts in heaven? Well, let me ask you. Where did sin begin? On earth or in heaven? Yeah. Satan led a coup in heaven, right? Yeah, that's where it started. So we kind of have some, you know, even heaven itself has been defiled in that sense. Uh, there's, a, there's a representation of sin there. What goes on there right now in heaven? Is there any any activity there that's not the best? Yeah he has limited access and he accuses the brethren before God day and night. Not a good thing for him to be doing for sure. Uh, so he's still got, he's still got a, a limited, limited presence there doing his thing. Well, at the end of the day, uh, Christ is going to bring everything into harmony. And, and that is all going to be behind us. But it's not so yet. Uh, let's see here. My next slide here. Christ's sacrifice broke down the barriers and made purification possible. He made it possible for the whole of creation, whether on earth or in heaven, to be restored. So the sense is that everything that can possibly be reconciled in the realm of heaven and earth will be reconciled. So that's, that's the sense of it. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, certainly we do not believe in universal salvation without a major qualifier. It's not like all souls are going to be saved. In fact... Jesus said, few there be that find it. Uh, A minority of people in the end are actually going to be saved. So, but, uh, and the qualifier for that is verse 23, as we will see. Okay, any thoughts here before we continue on? Yeah. Well, um, I think you're right in where you end up there. Uh, as far as the nuances, I'm not sure because he starts with this big picture here in verse 20. He's going to narrow it to personal reconciliation. And so I think the idea here is that God ultimately intends for everything to align perfectly with him as he intended. And, 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 and he's thinking more th- uh, things in heaven, things in earth, uh, you know, like we talked about Romans chapter 8. But now he's going to bring it down to a very personal level related to souls. So, um, yeah, all of that is true. There's a purging process for... The, I mean, th- this present earth is going to burn up one day. I mean, there's a, talk about a major purif- purification process on the way to reconciliation. Yeah, that's true. So... So I think you can, you know, read some theology in there, sort of, in that way. But I think the bottom line here is this idea of being brought back into alignment with God as he intended for things to be. Yeah. Good question, though. Good input. Anybody else? Somebody else have a hand up? Okay. Note there the end of that verse says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross... So here we have the, uh, an important qualifier here. How did he reconcile all things? Well, it's by the blood of his cross. Having made peace, meaning all is well, uh, really you have a direct correlation here between reconciliation and peace. To be reconciled means now we're in a state of peace. All, all is well, is, is that, that idea. And how did it happen? Well, through the blood of his cross. Notice it doesn't say by his birth. It doesn't say by his baptism or even by his miracles. No, this is by the blood of his cross. This is the basis of reconciliation. It's based on this. And, of course, as we move on to the personal emphasis in verse 21, uh, narrowing it, uh, you know, we're not reconciled on the basis of good works, on the basis of baptism, on the basis of sacraments or church or whatever. It's the blood of his cross. This is the basis by which we have reconciliation. Um, It's interesting, you know, as you follow the theme through in in the Bible, uh, here in Leviticus back in the Old Testament, the life of the flesh is in in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. There's a principle related to the blood there. But I believe there's also a principle related to the altar, which ultimately becomes a, a picture of the cross, the place of the cross. Um, did Christ ever cut his finger and shed a little blood when he was a boy, you know, that kind of thing? You say, well, is, 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 you no, know, I had to be at the altar, at the cross. Uh, so there's that emphasis. Uh, verses 19 and 20 really go together, emphasizing the person and the work of Christ, as, as I have uh, said. Uh, when we talk about the person of Christ, verse 19, it pleased the, the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Really emphasizing, cap, capping the emphasis on the person of Christ that we saw um, back there in the previous verses, verses 15 through 19. And building on that, now we have the work of Christ. This is a reality and now building on that the work of Christ and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the person and the work of Christ, a consistent package all the way through the scriptures. Uh, the point is that the whole flow of thought speaks to the fact that the value of Christ's death is inseparably linked with the value of his person. Verses 15 through 19 present Christ is the supreme prominent person person overall and that that leads right into how it pleased the father that by jesus all things are reconciled through the blood of his cross christ's life was so valuable that god counted a worthy sacrifice for the sin of the whole world It was so valuable that it is the basis for the reconciliation of all his blood was that of the creator who became man his blood was that of the human being in whom the fullness of god dwelt That is what made his life and his sacrifice completely sufficient to reconcile all. You hear that up there? A little little like fuzziness coming through the... Yeah, just the way it is. Okay, yep. No, no, right, right. All things are not yet reconciled, brother. (laughs) Okay, very good. As I say, he now narrows the scope and we get into a very personal emphasis here in verse 21. Who wants to read that for us? Yeah, Dave. Okay, love this verse, love this verse uh and you he now makes it very personal yeah big scope things all things in heaven and earth that can be reconciled but now very personal and you uh he points right to the individual believer here uh, you who were once alienated this is where we once were before we were reconciled we're in the position of alienation uh, which means that we are estranged. We are separated from God. And we were in that position as unbelievers. I-, I love this line. Well, when did you become a Christian? Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. Really? What verse you got in mind here? Uh, no, no. You're born dead in your sins. At some point, you needed to be reconciled. You needed to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Uh, who were once... Ail- n- no, no exceptions... We were all once alienated and enemies. People don't like to think. You know, I I was was always a pretty good person. No, you were an enemy of God, which means you were hostile. You were not neutral. We don't come neutral. We don't come nice people. Well, they're nice people. No, they're not. They're enemies of God. I mean, I understand. We understand. They're good citizens. They're they're moral, whatever. They're polite. Without reconciliation, we're described as, as enemies in opposition. We're rebels, whether it be overtly or subtly. Uh, we are rebels who hate God. That's our natural position as unbelievers. Uh, you know, and there's, there's reason the Bible says don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How are we going to get along with this situation? We got lovers of God and haters of God. How's that ever going to work out? It's not going to work out. It's snowing. Yeah, it was that hearing aid. You may want to take it out, Albert. Take your hearing aid out now. Anyway. Yeah, that was good, John. For We had a, we had a really good second there. Oh, I was muted. <laughs> okay, that helps. All right. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind. Here's the problem. Here's ground zero for the enmity in our minds. Uh, by wicked works uh, what's in the mind then works its way out into life really everything begins in the in the mind to start with in terms of of wickedness but this is where it starts is in the mind what needs to happen in the mind huh yeah let me take you back to our previous discussion repentance what's repentance mean change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. That's what the word repentance means, to have a change of mind. It's involved in a saving faith. A saving faith is a change of mind kind of faith. And before that, we have a mind problem. We don't think right. We think in terms of hostility. We think in terms of enmity. And that's where we were. Uh, We were at enmity with God in our minds. We didn't think in a way that lines up with the truth of Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior. We thought in terms of being rebels, we need to lay down our sword. We need to say, okay, you are Lord. I recognize the truth of who you are, and that fundamental change of mind changes everything. But notice, uh, uh, in your mind, you were alienated enemies in your mind by wicked works. Uh, The mind expresses itself in the life And that's what we have brought out here. But yet now he has reconciled. He brought us from that position of being separated from being alienated and enemies to now being reconciled. And notice he has reconciled. God has done it. Christ has done it is really the emphasis here. Uh, He has brought us into that right relationship with God and he has done it by the blood of his cross as we saw in verse 20. It's all Christ doing. Our whole relationship with God has now been changed. Really radically changed. I mean, we we were enemies and now we are his children. Uh, We are in a good relationship with God. Uh, Radical change. Our whole attitude towards God has been changed. Now we still have the flesh. We can be little brats, disobedient children. We can be that for sure. But really, we have a new nature in in league with the Holy Spirit. Our attitude towards God has been changed. We now have peace with God on the basis of the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We went from a disposition of hostility and evil works to that of worship and wanting to obey our Lord. This is called being born again. Note it well. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. We once were there. We once were there, but not anymore. We're not there anymore. If you are, you're not where you need to be. You're not reconciled. Now, we have been reconciled, and that means we have a whole different disposition, a whole different relationship with God. Uh, That's the fundamental point that is being brought out here. Okay, any other thoughts? Yeah, Rob? Oh, you're okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he, he's talking about a principle that, uh, as it says here, uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Uh, you know, without blood, you don't have life. Yeah, yeah. And and I think in terms of what you're talking about, Philippians chapter 3, there's two things, uh, and and they're related, but they're distinct. On, on the one hand, we have what, what Christ has done for us, his blood sacrifice for us. And then there's how do how do i need to respond to receive it and philippians 3 is really dealing with that issue so yeah okay very good now i got to catch up to where i was let's see if i can remember this is that where we left off okay thank you we're doing this as a group here right yeah okay very good any other thoughts here yeah uh oh Well, that could be. I mean, the, 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 the flow of thought continues, right? Yeah, yeah the sentence is, is it, mine is clearly broken. Yeah. Do you have a comma? Yeah. Yeah, mine is just like stops mid-sentence. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> okay, anything else? All right, let's have somebody read verse uh, 22. Who wants to read verse 22? Yeah, Dale? Okay, thank you. Well, haven't we covered this already? In the body of his flesh through death. Um, This is the basis that's being emphasized of reconciliation. And we have covered it. There's a tremendous emphasis here. Notice uh, in verse 20, uh, you've got the Greek preposition uh, dia, which is translated by him. And in my new King James, it's twice there. By him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things... uh, So there's a tremendous emphasis on this being done by Jesus Christ there. And then it talks about uh, to reconcile all things to himself. All things. Uh, Verse 20, through the blood of his cross. And then verse 21, he has reconciled. And now verse 22, in the body of his, his flesh through death. So there's a tremendous emphasis here on Jesus Christ and what he has done to bring about this reconciliation. But what about this language here, in the body of his flesh through death? Well, a couple of thoughts here. <clears throat> a couple of things may be in view. Paul may be alluding to the error of the Gnostic teachers who taught that which is physical is evil, while that which is spiritual is holy. And what do we call that? Remember from last week? It's called dualism. The, the, the teaching of dualism, like spirit is good and physical is evil. And so they had to have all these emanations, uh, you know, where uh, somewhere in, be- you know, the, the, the ultimate holy spiritual God could not create things physical because that would taint him. So there's all these emanations between the... Uh, and, and he's saying, no, no, no. In Christ is the fullness. Uh, he's not some emanation. Uh, So anyway, he may be dealing with that. Uh, This is why they emphasize angels and put down the idea of Christ being a physical Savior. Paul counters this error with this strong statement of no compromise, emphasizing that, in fact, reconciliation was affected by the body of Christ's flesh through death. It was a physical death. That counters the Gnostics. Uh, Also, perhaps, Paul made this emphasis to make a clear delineation between the body of Christ, used in a metaphorical sense, referring to the church, uh, as his body, in verse 18. And his literal physical body as now seen in this immediate context. So, you could have a couple of those things uh, going on there. Alright, before I go on, any thoughts here? Okay, notice what he says here. Again, he's, he's emphasizing what he has accomplished here. He's still building on this theme of reconciliation. To present you holy. Now, that ought to make you excited as a believer. Uh, one day... You're going to be presented to God. And how are you going to be presented? Half defiled? No, no. (laughs) Holy. You're going to be presented holy. Uh, He he did this uh, through the body of his flesh through death to the end that you are presented holy. To present you holy, which means to be set apart and we're set apart from sin to God. To present you holy and blameless. I like the qualifier Blameless is without fault, without fault, without blemish, without defect. There's no basis for condemnation in reconciliation. If you've been reconciled, there's no basis at all for any condemnation. We are completely reconciled. Remember the strong word for reconcile in verse 20? There is no sin barrier. There there is nothing between us and God now. The cross removed all of that out of the way. We are completely reconciled to God. I mean, you can't be any more reconciled than we are to God. Uh, to the end that we are going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Uh, what's the idea of above reproach? Well, it's free from all accusation. You know, we've all been accused of things, right? And falsely accused really hurts. The problem is the devil really is accurate in a lot of his accusations, I think, right? You say, well, Pastor Dwight, yeah, yeah. But my defense lawyer is right there for me, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His blood avails for me. And, and is, I'm in perfect relationship with God because of that. Above reproach. No charge can be held against us. Uh, nothing will keep us from God. Uh, we are now in this perfect position of holiness, blameless, and above reproach. of it all is the cross of Christ and what He has done for us. And so... Two changes happen in relation to reconciliation. Number one, our disposition, no longer alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. We have a different disposition. And our position, now seen as wholly blameless and above reproach. Reconciliation, uh, these two aspects. Okay, um, all right. Any other thoughts there before we get to the last verse? John, you're all rested up. I was expecting some input here. You're still resting. (laughs) That's okay. All right, let's have somebody read verse uh, 23. Who wants to read verse 23? Yeah, LaVita? Okay. Wow. We got an if-verse. All this is true. Ah, right on. Since is really the sense here. The, the, the condition of if is really since. Since. So the idea is that uh, we are saved on the basis of faith. You know, uh, that's, that's clear from a lot of different scriptures. But a saving faith endures. It continues. In reconciliation, God does it all. Jesus has done all the saving work, but this reconciling work does demand a response. Not a works response, but a response of sincere faith in Christ. You see, reconciliation involves a change of mind on the, on the part of the offending party. I'm using kind of a, a very human illustration at this point. But uh, note here, let's suppose you have a married couple and one of them is involved in an ongoing adulterous relationship. Obviously, this will cause a rift in the relationship. But then the adulterer says, I do want to reconcile, but I am not going to give up my adultery. By the way, I have dealt with those kind of situations. Where Yeah, I want to reconcile, but I'm still holding on to my adultery. That doesn't work. Uh, let me ask you, is this going to result in reconciliation? No. No, it's not. No, of course not. Reconciliation demands a change of mind, what the Bible calls repentance in the heart of the offender. And if that is true, if we truly have true repentance, it's going to continue. Uh, we're going to have a, a faith that continues. This is not saying you can lose your salvation. Again, certain groups want to go to this verse and say, well, see, if, if you continue to hold on, uh, no... Uh, the if really should be translated as since. The sense is since. Since you continue in the faith. And the idea is it assumes that true faith will continue. And it's not just here. We we have this all over the New Testament. Uh, Let me give you William McDonald's commentary here, which is good. The eternal security of the believer is a blessed truth which is set forth clearly in the passage of the New Testament. By the way... Um, it's very easily to prove eternal security. I mean, when Christ died for your sins, how many of your sins did he die for? And if you receive his payment for your sin, what kind of a pardon do you have? All of it. You get a full pardon. I mean, uh, he didn't die just for pardon. So, so either you he died for it all and you get a full pardon or he didn't. By one offering, he is perfected forever. Those that are being sanctified. Uh, So he continues on. However, the scriptures also teach, as in this verse, the true faith always has the quality of permanence. And that one who has really been born of God will go on faithfully to the end. Continuance is a proof of reality. Of course, there's always a danger of backsliding. That's true. But a Christian falls only to rise again. And I would insert Hebrews here where God disciplines all of his children to build holiness into our lives. unless, Unless you're illegitimate. But if you're a true child of God, you just cannot sin with immunity and say, well, you know, but I've got saving faith. No, no. Uh, if you're a true child of God, he's going to discipline you. Uh, the true believer does not forsake the faith. The Spirit of God has, been, has seen fit to put many of these so-called if passages in the Word of God in order to challenge all who profess the name of Christ as to the reality of their profession. It's a good, a good summary statement. Um, in terms of uh, continuance, continuance is a test of reality. Continuance is a test of reality. Uh, you know, there's a lot of malaria Christianities. You know, they have a fever and then a chill. You know, and, and they don't last. Uh, continuance is a test of reality, and it's amazing how people—boy, they seem so real and they're really—and then they just fizzle somewhere and and, and they leave the scene. Well, ultimately, God alone knows. And we're going to leave final judgment to God because he alone is uh, the ultimate judge. But we are discerning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about the gospel. He says, you know, how he shared the gospel with them. He says, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. What if they don't? Well, then, unless you believed in vain. There is such a thing as a bogus faith that does not continue. And that's what Paul is telling these Corinthians. Hebrews 13:14, we have become partakers of Christ. If there's another if statement, we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And the for true believers is that we will, since we hold the beginning of our conf, uh, confidence steadfast until the end. 1 John 2:19, they went out from us. They left the believers You know, they left the fellowship. I'm not talking about going from one Bible teaching church to another Bible teaching church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they left the Christian community. They they, they walked away. They went out from us, which we call apostasy, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, truly saved, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They were not truly of us, he says, or they would have continued with us. So, many, many places in the New Testament we have this emphasis. And I think that's a sense here. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded is the idea of established, uh, grounded in gospel truth. uh, And steadfast is the idea of settled, a settled uh, resolve regarding the gospel, uh, a firm commitment to the gospel, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So again, uh, this idea, we we do not completely apostatize. It's not that we don't uh, struggle along the way. We do. We see it all over the New Testament as well. But we will not completely apostatize as true believers. We will not completely abandon the faith. Paul says the same essential thing four ways. Continuing, grounded, steadfast, not moved away. If this characterizes your stand on the gospel... That is evidence that you have truly been reconciled to God. However, if a person does not continue in, is not established on, is not settled about, and moves away from the gospel, it just goes to prove they were never truly genuine. That's my theology. We are saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. Somebody wrote a paper called The Right Kind of Faith one time. Didn't they, Albert? Yeah, And somebody named Albertson working on him to revise that thing for some time. I'm working on it, but it's a slow process here. Uh, It is a change of mind kind of faith that embraces Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a change of mind kind of faith that has the character of permanence. It is the spirit of what we sing in the words, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The Reformers well said we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. And I would add one more thing. It continues. It continues. If you can completely walk away from the faith, as many are doing today, ah, they had a malaria kind of experience, spiritually speaking. A fever and then a chill. It wasn't real. Yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right. You have begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting to me, your testimony there. I mean, it's not like you were totally giving up on Christ. It's like I'm done with Christians maybe. I mean, they're hurting me all the time here. You might have been tempted to do that. But then even the the word brings you back like, oh, no, nope, that's not where I should be either. But, uh, yeah, that's great. Anyone else? Okay, very good. Let's finish it out here. He says, "...which you heard." They heard the gospel. And he talks about the hope of the gospel, uh, which really ties back uh, to verse 5. If you go back to verse 5 in in chapter 1, "...because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel." And so, we have this hope of the gospel. The word hope in the New Testament is a certain expectation that God will bring to pass what He has promised, so it's the idea of a certain expectation. And we have the hope. Uh, there, there is a better, there is a better life ahead here in, in heaven for us. Yeah, it's snowing. You know what? Maybe should I turn it off? I'm just about done. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I turned it off for a second. Alright, I'll keep going here. Hopefully I didn't do that. Huh? Plow ahead. yep. Okay, let me finish out here. Uh, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Probably uh, Paul speaking here in a, in a broad sense, a little, uh, you know, uh, hyperbole here, uh, which was preached to every creature. The idea that the message went out far and wide in a very broad, widespread way. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. His whole life was given over to this, this gospel message. Uh, let me finish out here. Uh contextual emphasis the person of Christ this is why I say it's one of the great chapters in the in the, in the Bible uh, the person of Christ tremendously powerful emphasis I don't know if you have a more compact powerful emphasis than Colossians 1:15 through 19 on the person of Christ uh, the supremacy of Christ the exaltation of Christ uh, and that's followed by the reconciling work of Christ that we studied tonight in 120 through 22. And then the emphasis on a saving faith in the person and work of Christ that endures. And so that's really kind of a package there in terms of, of emphasis. And uh, to finish out, true saving faith that reconciles, uh, is, is reconciled to God results in, number one, a changed mind that is no longer hostile to God. Uh, a changed life that brings forth the fruit of righteousness. And a continuing faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. So those emphasis uh, that are brought out here. All right. Any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Okay. Can I shut it off?